to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 8th, we are studying Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. In today's text, St. Paul makes absolutely plain the thesis of his letter to the Galatians. A person is justified, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Once again, an honor to be with you in studying our Lord's Word. So we get started today. Give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been saying leading up to our text in Galatians 2? The text of Galatians, written to the people in Galatia, so up north in what we would call Turkey these days, churches that Paul himself planted on that first missionary journey, he seems to be turning around and writing to them quite quickly. Um, if missionary journeys in the already the mid to late forties, and this is this is often described as being maybe the first book written in the New Testament with a date maybe around forty eight, that puts this writing just right after he's already gone on that journey and planted their churches, and already he's turning around and he has to rebuke them for having so willingly received what he calls a, a different gospel, and then he quickly reverts that and says that that is no gospel at all. Um, as, as Paul went around on the missionary journeys of his, uh, he would plant congregations by going into their synagogues and he would simply point to Christ. He'd show them how the Old Testament was about Jesus. Some believed, and some got quite angry, and the angry ones often chased him out of the town. But this group, eventually, uh, they start following him from town to town. And as Paul leaves to move to a new place, they come in behind, and they start sowing these these seeds of, of maybe we would call it works righteousness, or uh, the Judaizers, the, the circumcision party, these guys come through and say, well, you're not really part of the church unless, if you want to be saved, you have to do this. And this is what Paul's responding to as he, he is speaking to us in this text today in Galatians 2. Now, our, our text, as I mentioned, I think this is really the, the thesis statement for the epistle. We get the, the main doctrine that he wants to communicate. But right before it, there's some context that is pretty key for where this thesis shows up. And it's an epistle, so there's not a narrative per se, like there is, say, in the Gospels or in much of the Old Testament. But there is a bit of a narrative, a recounting that Paul gives us in the first couple of chapters, particularly on what we just read. A remind us of what's been happening and the context in which Paul gives this thesis statement for this letter. Sure. I don't know that he necessarily gives us a, a clear timeline of these events, but at some point the Apostle Peter has been in the city of Antioch, and this is what we saw starting in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Peter had been spending time with Gentile Christians, people that maybe Peter himself had even first shared the word of God with, uh, new Christians, new to the faith, 
and things are going just like you might expect with a missionary being well-received by, by the people amongst whom he serves. And then, then some of Peter's old Jewish friends show up, men who cling to, again, this, this older idea of, of you have to do this, you have to be circumcised, you have to keep Moses' commandments, and, and so forth. And as they show up, Peter puts distance between himself and these new Gentile Christians, that they, because they're not circumcised, for example, they're not good enough. That's the message Peter is communicating by what he has done. He, he avoids them, in essence, and he teaches them by his actions that they're not saved by Christ alone. All right, so that's that's what Peter's been up to. And Paul, as we started to hear last text, Paul confronts him on it. He's pretty direct with him. Talk to us about Paul's confrontation to Peter. Yeah, I mean, we hear these conversations about how how do you go about a, a, a public rebuke? Peter has sinned publicly, and, and Paul seems to take him to task on it, perhaps publicly, right, for everyone to hear because they need to know this too. They need to know that the thing that they just learned is not okay, uh, and we need to turn, shift, repent, go a different direction, not just Peter and Paul together, but the whole congregation together in that place. So, yeah, Peter opposes him to his face, we read there in verse 11, and then we get this this short conversation uh, that's quoted for us in verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The ESV text ends that quote right there. Not every English Bible does. In fact, some of them have no quotation marks at all. Others take it straight through the end of the chapter. This is a bit of a conundrum to, to know exactly where Paul's conversation with Peter is a quotation and where he has shifted gears back to his Galatian hearers. It's at least verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The next verse after our conversation today is clearly spoken to the Galatians as he calls them foolish. Okay, so do you have a—I'm just curious. Do you have an opinion on, on where the quotation ends? Because you're, you're right— there are different English translations that make different decisions here, and the Greek doesn't doesn't help us in the sense of providing punctuation marks for us. Certainly what we're going to read today is related to the rebuke that Paul gave to Peter and what's been happening, but I'm just curious if you have a, a thought as to where the quotation be, especially ends. I think it's pretty clear where it begins. Yeah, personally, I think I'm okay letting it go straight through the end of the chapter. Um, I, I don't know that it matters terribly to take it that far, but it's at least got to go verse 15. I mean, verse 15 seems to make little sense if it's not spoken to Peter. But yeah, I mean, this is either direct confrontation for several verses, or now Paul has let the Galatians know he challenged Peter on this, and then he's giving them a summary of what they talked about that isn't a quotation. So either way, this is the kind of stuff he and Peter had to unpack together, and now Paul thinks it right and fitting to share it with these, these Christians in Galatia. For the listener, if you're looking for putting English Bibles next to each other, a helpful tool I have appreciated in the last couple of years is a website called BibleHub.com, where if you just 
pop in any Bible verse, you can literally see, I think it's 29 different English translations. They'll just put all 29 of them right there on the screen, including the ones that you're probably most familiar with, like King James and NIV, ESV, and so forth. So that can be really helpful to see similarities right next to each other. Sure, sure. And as you said, where the quotation ends here isn't really all that, doesn't really make all that big of a difference in terms of the way that we understand what Paul is saying. Uh, but it is, it's helpful to realize that at least some of this could also be part of his conversation there with Peter, a quotation of what was said, not just a summary of the doctrine that was discussed for the Galatians. In either case, we get that doctrine. Again, we get very central theology to this epistle and to the scriptures as a whole. I've asked a couple other guests about if this is their favorite epistle, because Galatians is often very beloved by Lutherans, and in particular Lutheran pastors. Is this your favorite epistle, Pastor Andrews? It doesn't That's a good be. question. I don't I don't think I would put Galatians as first on my list. It is a good okay. one, sure. I think part of that for me is I feel like you have to read at least the first section of Galatians with an angry voice, um, as, as Paul's, <laughs> Paul's laying into him. I mean, he lets them have it, but... Yeah, there's good stuff in the book, certainly. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think from our section particularly, we get some very beloved, memorable verses as well. So we're going to turn to the text. This is Galatians 2, beginning at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That is our text for today, Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21. Pastor Andrews, you mentioned that verse 15 particularly you envision as a part of Paul's conversation with Peter. Why is that? And tell us what he's saying there. Well, so as we talked about Paul's missionary journeys, the congregations in Galatia receiving this letter comprised both of Jew and Gentile. And so it would seemingly make no sense to stop our quotation mark at the end of verse 14 and have Paul come back after rebuking Peter, come back to the Galatians and say, we ourselves, thus seemingly referring to the whole group, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I mean, that would be a hard, hard phrase to drop into Galatia. Um, so rather, seeing this as part of what he says to Peter makes more sense that it's just a, a two-man conversation here. Both Peter and Paul are, are Jews. And to reference the Gentiles as sinners, I mean, personally, I wouldn't be offended to be called a Gentile sinner because uh, that's what I am. <laughs> but um, for them... I think Paul, what he's at here is kind of mocking what the Judaizers' opinion of things was, that for the Judaizers, uh, the Jews are superior to the Gentiles. For them, 
this faith is theirs by birthright. They're better than the Gentiles are. So this this continues to set back up a Jew-Gentile distinction, which Paul will very intentionally and clearly set aside in Galatians 3, verse 28, whenever you cover that one in the next couple of days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So, okay, so I, I think I think you're right on with the way that he speaks here. It does make sense to imagine him saying this to Peter rather than to the entire Galatian congregation. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But, he says in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul clearly wants to make this verse pretty central, pretty plain, because he he repeats the same thing in multiple ways. Help us into Paul's language here in verse 16. I mean, can he say it any more clearly, right? Uh, how are we saved? As, as you've been mentioning, this is the crucial idea of the text, of the letter as a whole. What is what is salvific? What saves us? How are we saved? And here he says it, right? He, he just comes right out and says that we are not justified by works of the law. So justify uh, to make right. I have sinned against God. How am I going to be made right with God? That's our question as, as sinners. How do we come before a holy God and live? Not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. This is the good news. This is the good news that you and I have received. This is the good news that we have passed on, that's been passed on to us, and has been shared, as Paul says in one of his other epistles, Colossians 1. This has been sent around the world, every nation under heaven. Hmm. Yeah, this is, this is the, the, central, the central truth of Christianity. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. It is a religion of grace, of God's promises, rather than a religion of law, of what we must do. One thing that I, I think is, is helpful with a verse like this, with language like justification, is to, to put a picture into our minds and to keep a picture in our minds, because those words like justification— are very good, but they sometimes seem very abstract and, and sometimes hard to hold on to. Like, what, is it, what does it mean, Pastor, that I'm justified? So help us to give us, give us some, some pictures. What, what's the picture that we need to have in mind when we think about justification by grace through faith? I think the common imagery that we get on this is the courtroom. And so I'm the sinner, I'm on trial, the Lord is the judge, in this, I think the devil becomes the uh, prosecuting attorney here, but then Jesus stands up on my behalf, um, and he's the one that that's declares that I'm innocent, even though I know I'm not. Uh, I think that's our common picture. Um, talking about faith with this, one of the, the pictures that I've, I've heard used and I think can be a little helpful, because we talk about faith, and it almost sounds like faith becomes a work, like I have to do this. And I like to talk about it as receiving a gift. You can't do anything to earn a gift, right? Christmas morning comes around, the kids are they're excited, they know gifts are coming, but they didn't earn those gifts. No child was perfect this year, so much for Santa and the Cole kind of idea. Um, but they simply, they know, they trust, and then they receive the gift. Or the picture of a, a Valentine's Day idea here, of a husband 
giving his wife uh, a new piece of jewelry, maybe a necklace for for a gift for Valentine's Day, he he simply puts it around her, right? He, he'll actually fasten the necklace behind her neck. He'll put that necklace on her. And, and in a way, that's, that's faith. It's the recipient. It's not an action. We're not doing anything. It's not like the Lord has made this available and now we have to go on some grand quest to take it for ourselves. But he makes it available. He puts it right there in front of us. If you will, he says, take, eat, right? And it's right there to eat. Take a drink of it, all of you, and it's right there to be drunk. Uh, we just receive. Uh, we just act on on what's been given to us, what's already been made ours. So we, yeah, it's good stuff, good yeah, gift. Yeah, the, the, the understanding of faith as a gift rather than something like what I have to do. Some I think there is that thought among some that faith is my part of the of the thing, right? That that God does his part by giving me the gift and faith is the part that I do. That's not what faith is. Faith is also a gift which receives that gift that God has has won. And I think, you know, the images that you've got are very helpful. Faith has to come from a promise. It is that promise that works the faith and creates the faith. So a couple of images that I've tried to use to to picture that, one would be children who go trick-or-treating on Halloween. Why do they hold open their bags, knock on doors, say trick-or-treat? Because there's a promise of candy when, when you do those, when you have those things. So it's not about, like, I have to have enough faith to make the candy get in my bag but rather the bag is what I hold out to receive the gift. And the only reason I'm holding the bag out in the first place is because I've got a promise that something's going to be placed in it. So that that bag is not something that I'm doing. Rather, it's the instrument that receives the gift, that promise that candy's going to come, that creates the faith that then receives that very candy that has been promised. It's not, maybe it's not a perfect illustration, but it's at least one, I think, example of the promise creating the faith that then receives what has been promised. Yeah, well, I mean, even in that illustration, the child, the child probably didn't make their own bag, right? It was right. the bag was given to them too uh, by by mom and dad in order to to make use of. Even if it was their pillowcase, it was given to them a couple of years ago by mom and dad to make use of. So, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, I also like to talk about faith as trust. I think sure. that's helpful. Um, yeah, elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. I mean, etymologically, it just goes back to the, the, the words themselves. So the, the word faith comes to us from Latin, the Latin word fides, which is the Latin word for trust. So essentially, they end up being the same word. But to I think we understand trust better in that regard. Like if I say I trust my friend, we know what that means. Or if I say I, a child trusts their parents to provide a meal for them, we know what that means. They come to the dinner table at whatever time, trusting, like you said, with the candy, that it's going to be there. And faith is the same thing. So when I say I have faith in Christ's promises, all I'm saying is I trust Christ's promises, right? I believe what he said is true. And so I think that's a helpful way to sometimes think it through, too. Sure. And that that also helps to to answer some objections to those who say, well, the, you know, faith isn't enough. Well, when we talk about faith, we are talking about this trust, not a, not a bare knowledge that 
says, oh, yes, I know God exists, but rather I trust that he exists for me, that he lives and loves for me, that for me is the, the saving faith, not a, a simple bare knowledge that, that some might criticize. Yeah, I think that's James 2, maybe, where James yeah. says the, the demons believe and they shudder. Yeah, that's right. So that's not the faith that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about that that active trust. Now, again, Paul, I mean, he comes back to this multiple times, even within this one verse. A person isn't justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So then, and again, if we're thinking about this as a part of his conversation with Peter, he applies it, it sounds like, to Peter and himself right there in verse 16. This is what we've believed too, Peter. Why have you forgotten it? Yeah, I mean, one way or the other, both Peter and the Galatians need to hear this, right? Um, Peter needs to hear it because he's backed away from it. All of a sudden, it has become all about works again for him, and and that's not good. So, But at the same time, as Paul reflects with our, our Galatian brothers and sisters here, uh, they too needed to be reminded of this because, like Peter, they have fallen back into this trap, as, as this is happening amongst them as well right now. So, yeah, I... I hadn't really counted before, but that phrase works of the law shows up just in that verse three times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of emphasis here. Yeah, that's right. It's it's not through works of the law. It is through faith in Christ, not by works of the law. You're not going to be justified by works of the law. Sometimes when we talk about this this teaching of justification by grace through faith, it'll we'll call it the article on which the church stands or falls. And again, it's it's clearly an important point for Paul in this passage and for this entire epistle. Why is this such a central teaching to Christianity? Where are we without it? I mean, if this is you mentioned, you, sorry, you mentioned it earlier. The idea that every other world religion is about what we do, and as Christians under the old covenant, we have a picture of that. We know where that got us. It got us nowhere. Of uh, trying to fulfill, trying to keep, trying to do. As much as we tried, it only led to further guilt. It only led to further destruction. This is Luther uh, racking himself for hours trying to come up with every single sin he's done wrong, and poor poor Father von Staupitz has to kick him out <laughs> so that he goes back and does some work, and he can do some work. We We can't do this ourselves. And Anytime we get one of these movements within Christianity to try, and it's it, it's these different like Jesus and kind of things. So it's Jesus and my works. And even purgatory becomes that, right? Purgatory becomes Jesus' salvation, Jesus' forgiveness on the cross wasn't quite enough. There's still something else. There's something extra. Um, we see that with things like decision theology as well where it's not just up to Jesus. Did I, did I really mean it? Did I say the sinner's prayer? Did I confess right? Did I do this right? And that even, unfortunately, becomes the, in those kind of situations, the pastor's counsel to the person who is inflicted with grief. It's just like, I can't imagine a parishioner coming to me and saying how, how grieved they are with their sin, and they feel so guilty about it, and my response being like, did you did you really say the sinner's prayer? Are you sure you're are you sure you're a Christian? That that kind of thing is just so so destructive to faith. Mm. But to to know on the other hand that 
it's not by my works. It's not by what I have done, but it's entirely by what Christ has done. So when I have committed that sin and the devil's still using it to taunt me and telling me the lie that God can't really forgive that, and in that guilt, I go to my pastor and he says, Christ forgives you. That word is true and it doesn't depend on me. Christ yeah. has done it. I, I, if it has to do with me, I'm done. I'm gone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and I appreciate the way that you're connecting it to Christ and his work on the cross, because that's where Paul connects it by the end of this reading. If, if we're saved by these works of the law, then Christ's death means nothing. So this, you know, when we talk about this salvation by grace through faith, it's grounded in Christ and his saving work for us, and that becomes the foundation so that, as you said, when we have that guilty conscience that can find no rest, if, if we are directed back to anything that we've done, then we still will find no rest, no solid ground. If, if the question that is asked by the pastor is, well, did you mean it when you said the sinner's prayer? Or, or he just says, oh, don't worry, you said the sinner's prayer. Uh, then we have that question in our minds, well, did I mean it? Was I sincere? And we, we can never find rest or certainty there. But rather, if we are directed back to Christ and his work, did Christ mean it when he died on the cross? Did, does God really love the world so that he gave his only son? The answer to those questions is always yes, and there's no denying it, because that answer is outside of us. And so there's absolute certainty there, outside of us, and what Christ has done, when the certainty can't be found within. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Christ's word is, is sure, it's certain, it's absolute. I can know it, I can trust it, whereas if it's about me, it's squishy. Yeah, that's right. And so and so Paul leaves us on solid ground rather than on spongy ground by repeating multiple times that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed, and God has delivered on the promise that he has made. We're going to keep looking at how Paul explicates this beautiful promise of God more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Steve Andrews this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC-insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 8th. We're studying Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. 
Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were talking about one of the most beautiful and comforting and certain verses in the Scriptures. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What a wonderful promise there in Galatians 2.16. As we move to the next verse, I'm sure the promises are still just as beautiful, but they're a little bit harder to understand. Verses 17 and 18, for all the clarity that was there in verse 16, verses 17 and 18 seem a little less clear to me. Paul begins asking some questions, perhaps anticipating some objections to what he's saying, and it's sometimes hard to, to follow, so we have the opportunity to try to sort this out a little bit. Verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And the answer, certainly not. So, help us into what Paul is saying here. Yeah, you're absolutely right that we move from this crystal clear, straightforward verse about salvation into these, I'd say even three verses in a row where you, you read the text and you like you, you read it again and you're just left scratching your head like, Do, what's he saying? What's, what's going on here? So as we look at 17 of the first one of these clauses, it's important to remember we're building an argument. So we've got the crystal clear argumentation in verse 16. It is not by works of the law that anyone will be justified. So our relationship whether it's Peter or the Galatian Christians or or me and you today, our relationship to the law is in view. The law does not save us. And to use Paul's language that's going to come up later in this same letter, the law is not our guardian any longer. Like the, the time comes when the father removes the guardian from that role. Like we are not under the guardian because we have come of age. Christ has come, basically. But that invites a problem then for those who are still seeking to hold to the Old Testament. Those Judaizers looking in from the outside are going to look at it and say, well, if Jesus freed you from keeping the law, where does that leave you? What what do you have left? If you don't have the law anymore, then you're going to be law breakers. You're not going to be focused on keeping these laws that God gave us to keep. You're going to be breaking them. That makes you free to be as he's already used the phrase mockingly, Gentile sinners. Um, I do think, in a way, maybe we come back to this one, the, the antinomian struggles that, that can come up even in our day today and have historically. But I would, trying to stay focused on this verse first, there's, there's more mockery coming out of Paul, I think, in this statement. He's, he's mentioning the position of the Judaizers, so their concern is you're refusing circumcision. So if you're refusing circumcision, you say it's okay not to be circumcised because Jesus says it's not okay. Well, God said you had to be circumcised. So that makes you a servant of sin. It makes Jesus a servant of sin because he's telling you to do sinful things. And so Paul then making the conclusion at the end of the text, this verse of 17, may it never be, certainly not. It seems to be one of his favorite phrases. He, he does this 10 times in... Romans. He does it once in 1 Corinthians. He does it three times here in Galatians. And maybe an analogy, uh, as we've talked about how pictures and, and things can help before, Paul's primary concern in verse 17 is about whether our sins make Jesus a sinner, a servant of sin. So this is like perhaps a, a prison analogy would help. I've, I've been serving 
a prison sentence for committing a crime. And after 10 years, the parole board lets me go free. I'm a free man. I'm out. But now that I'm out, I go and I commit seven more crimes. Is the parole board at fault for that? And the answer is no. I mean, I'm at fault for that. I'm the one who's at fault. So even in this case, even if even if Paul is continuing on in sin, that's not Jesus who's done that. The The fault would still be on us. Yeah. And so, I mean, th- you know, thinking about that, the way that he responds and answers his own question with the phrase, certainly not, as you said, a, a phrase that Paul uses elsewhere. The one that I remember most where Paul uses that language is in Romans chapter 6, where he mm-hmm. says, you know, so shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound by no means. So the, the argument there is, or the potential argument that he's not not going to agree with is that, well, you know, Jesus loves to forgive me, and I love to sin, so it seems like this is a win-win. I can keep on right. sinning, and and I can be a sinner from beforehand, and I can keep on sinning afterward, and Jesus loves to forgive that, so everyone wins. And and it seems here that maybe something similar is in the background, a, a similar argument that he's anticipating, that those who would disagree with what Paul lays out in verse 16 would say, well, if that's the case, if that if you are justified completely through faith in Christ and not by your works of the law, then that means Christ is condoning your sin, that he somehow wants you to sin or has, has desired your sin and, and is serving sin and is an agent of sin. And Paul says to that, just like he says in Romans 6, certainly not. And I think in order or to help us see why he's so emphatic here, it is helpful to keep this, again, connected to Christ's work on the cross. If it, it, What we're talking about with justification is not just God winking an eye at your sin and saying it's no big deal, but rather it's God doing something about that sin because it was such a big deal. And I think when you keep it connected to Christ's work on the cross, that also helps you to see what Paul's argument is here and why his response is so emphatic. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it's such a, a tremendous reminder because we hear this a lot. People talk about how, oh, it was what I that 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 sin I did. It, it was no big deal. Nobody got hurt by it, right? Um, we downplay sin quite a bit in the culture today, but Jesus died for it. God died because of my sin. It's no minor thing. I think this is what Luther gets at in the. Christian questions with their answers that we have at the back of our small catechism or thankfully can be found in our hymnal if you're sitting there before church on Sunday morning and and want to refresh yourself on those. That last question, uh, question number 20, is basically going to get at that very idea. Yeah, so so Christ is not a servant of sin by justifying you. You're, you are the sinner, and Christ is the one who justifies. Now, you, you mentioned, again, in the, in the context the way that Paul speaks here against those who are the Judaizers, that, that perhaps this is something that we still need to hear today in, in certain, I think you use the term antinomian contexts. So help give us, give us at least a, a little bit of, of some more, more modern application in our context in the Church today. Yeah, uh, so for those not familiar with the antinomian word, it's just from the Greek, it means without the law or apart from the law. So those accused of being antinomians are those who live as though there is no law. And for us as Christians, even though I mentioned the law is no longer our guardian, when we think back to God's law, when we think that things like the Ten Commandments, these are simply God's design for 
our good, right? Is it is it good to not kill my neighbor? Generally speaking, if I don't do that, things will go better than if I do. <laughs> Right. <laughs> don't steal. Don't cheat on your on, on your spouse with your neighbor's spouse. All these kinds of things just create giant messes when we do them. And so God's law has a place. It's good. It's not like the law is what is evil here. We just we can't be saved by our attempts to keep it. It's the thing to keep in mind for us. It it can be depending on which law we're talking about. There's some certain Old Testament laws that might sound a little strange to people today in, their, in our ears, but for the most part, I think we would look at God's laws and we would say, yeah, that's good for me. I should, I should, probably, I should probably go to church on the Sabbath day. I, I, should, I should probably honor my parents. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The law is good, but it does not save. And that, that's important to keep in mind not only in this section of Galatians, but throughout the epistle, so that we don't misunderstand how Paul would have the law function for the the Christian life. Now, okay, so we've got that in place with verse 17, that Christ is not a servant of sin because he justifies sinners. Then he continues, Paul continues in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So I think that, especially that second half, I prove myself to be a transgressor fits in with what we were saying just a few moments ago, that Christ isn't the servant of sin, we're the ones who are sinning. But what about this language of, of tearing down and, and building that he's got in the first part, especially of that verse? Sure, and I think this goes, again, immediately, what's the context? What's going on with Peter? Essentially, Peter has just done this. Peter has gone to the, the Christians or maybe they weren't Christians before Peter went to them. Maybe Peter is the one who planted whatever church we're discussing here. And he he has torn down this idea of circumcision and, and these things that must be done in order to be saved. And now, because the Jews have come, old friends of his, and, and now he's leaving the Gentiles behind, he has rebuilt what he tore down. He took a, a wall that the Gentiles didn't really want to cross, and... He let them in, and now he's kicking them out. Um, maybe an example, another illustration. Uh, you get a people who hate their government, and so they decide to rebel against the government and to tear it down. Uh, but the anarchy that ensues is so treacherous and so awful, they realize, oh, what a terrible thing we did getting rid of our government, and they go ahead and they rebuild their government. That's what I think Paul is kind of in a more helpful way getting at here, like, this has been done away with, and to put it back up would be the the wrong thing to do. And so, what is torn down? Uh, it's the it's the keeping of the law. It's the idea of circumcision and dietary laws and those kinds of things being necessary in order to be saved. Hmm. Uh, Paul uses this language of things being torn down, especially between Jew and Gentile elsewhere, doesn't he? Yes, um, and I. It's Ephesians 2, and I never know where to stop this quote, because it's Scripture, and it's beautiful, and I just, I always feel weird stopping. And Paul has long sentences on top of it. He does. It's like the man never stops to breathe. (laughs) Uh, So Ephesians 2 is a text well-beloved by many Lutherans, many Christians. We know 8 and 9 very famously um, talking about this same topic, that we are saved not by our works, lest no man can boast, but we're saved by grace through faith. Verse 10 then comes in and says the same thing about, you know, the law is still good. Verse 10 comes in and reminds us that 
God has prepared good works beforehand that we would walk in them. So we're saved not by works, but there are works to be done. Um, so the, the balance here of faith and works. But picking up at verse 13 for, for this idea of tearing down. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came near and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And I think I'm going to pause there, right? But again, if you want, listeners, keep reading. What a beautiful section. There was a wall between the Jew and the Gentile. There was the old idea floating among them that Christ, that the Messiah, would be the Savior of the Jews, And it's like they missed all those notes in the Old Testament about how it would also be for the Gentiles. Like Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God tells his suffering servant Jesus that it would be too light a thing for him to just bring back the children of Jacob, but he's going to be the savior of the nations. Um, Even the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 uh, that he would, his offspring would become a blessing to all nations. There was a wall. But that wall's torn down in Jesus. There's, there's no, and this is what Galatians 3 is going to end up being about, verse 28, about salvation. Like, there's no distinction. When it comes to being saved, it's in Christ, and it's in Christ alone. It doesn't depend on me. So it doesn't matter if I'm a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if I'm male or female. It doesn't matter if I'm a slave or free. I'm saved because of what Christ has already done. All right, so verse 17 and 18, a little bit more clarity from those now. You included verse 19 also as one that's perhaps a little bit more difficult to understand, and certainly the language there is not the way that I think we're used to speaking, although I can think of a few passages where Paul does speak similarly. In Galatians 2.19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So die to the law, now alive to God. What's Paul saying here? Yeah, so why I think this one's confusing, it's just through the law, I died to the law. Uh, what? What are, you, what are you getting at? And I think to see the law, and we often talk about it as having three uses, curb, mirror, guide. This is the second use right here. This is the one we talk about the most when we say the law kills, the gospel makes alive. Uh, the law is a mirror. The law shows me my sin. When I look at it, I see I'm not perfect. I see the things that I've done that are wrong. And so through the law, the law being a mirror, through the law showing me my sin, I've recognized I can't do it. I cannot keep this. I am not perfect. I'm not able to perfect myself. And so I died to the law. I came to the point of recognizing I cannot do this. There has to be, there has to be another way or I'm doomed. And so in this way, the law points us to Christ. The law shows me my sin, and it shows me my need for a Savior. And so since I'm in Christ, that law is no longer master over me. Again, chapter 3, and instead I live for God. I don't have to spend my days worrying about how to keep 
X number of pharisaical rabbinical laws that have been created to keep. Instead, I'm free to focus my time on loving the Lord and loving my neighbor. Mm-hmm. So to, to die to the law is to recognize that the law cannot save, that my attempts to keep the law only leave me more dead and, and even less alive if I can be more dead. <laughs> yeah, so right. I, I suppose then, if I can say it this way, in, if we attempt to live in the law, then we end up dead toward God. And, and if we're using the law rightly, we're going to see that the more we try to live in the law, the more we see our failures. So we have to be dead in that sense so that God can be the one to raise us and make us alive. And then we truly are living to him. Good. Yeah. Okay. So the law, and this is, I mean, if you think about your, your catechism days in confirmation class, the law shows our sin. Paul is showing how that happens in the life of the Christian. It's happened for him. Should have happened for, it's happened for Peter too, and he's reminding it for Peter and for the Galatians as well. Verse 20, I think, is one of the most beloved verses in Galatians. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A lot that we can unpack there, Pastor Andrews. Yeah, and you've mentioned a couple of good connections with this already. So um, Romans 6 you brought up earlier, the idea that we are buried with Christ in our baptisms into his death, and thus we will also be united with him in his resurrection. Beautiful section. Um, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 starts out the very beginning of that chapter saying that we were dead in our trespasses in which we once walked. And it goes on to then expound how Christ has made us alive. Like, dead men can't do stuff. So that's why I was laughing earlier when you said you were making yourself more dead by trying to keep, like, yeah, we can't do it. I'm dead, crucified in Christ. The old Adam in this case, as we talk about the old Adam, that old sinful nature, my old sinful desires, that's been put to death. It's now Christ who lives in me. As Paul say in chapter 6, verse 15, the idea that we are a new creation in Christ. So no longer do we live this life for me, myself, and I. Again, we're called to love God. We're called to love our neighbor. Sin focused on us inward. Um, When I talk to the kids about the garden and how things originally were made by God, Adam and Eve, and, and what they were to do, Adam was never instructed to care for Adam. Adam was given Eve to care for and to protect and to provide for, and he was given a garden, a creation, to care for. And the same with Eve. Eve was never told by God to care for Eve. She was given Adam to care for as her husband, and she was to help him care for creation. And I, in part, at least, this is why there's no shame. They're, they're naked, but they're not ashamed. And then as soon as they commit sin, the first thing they do is they recognize that they're naked. They look down. They curve inward is uh, the way that St. Augustine and Luther both uh, picked up on that idea, talking about sin as being curved in on oneself. So Christ has taken that and he's turned us outward again. Instead of being oriented towards myself all the time, Christ is opening up my eyes to be able to see that there are people around me who, who need his love, who need his word, who need his mercy and his help. 
uh, and we're called then to, as again, Adam and Eve, to care for one another, to care for creation. Mm. Yeah, and even those those works that God has prepared for us to do in advance, use Ephesians 2 language there, those, according to Galatians 2, that's that's Christ living in me. So even there, I don't get the credit, so that it doesn't become right. Jesus plus something. As you said earlier, it's not Jesus mm-hmm. and fill in the blank, but it's Jesus plus nothing, that's what everything is. And so even those works that I do, that's Christ living in me, working in me, that that belongs to him as well. Yeah, and we see that in, in the judgment picture he gives in Matthew 25, as he's talking about uh, to the, the sheep and the goats, as he separated them, he looks to the sheep and he praises them for having clothed him when he was naked and visited him when he was in prison and, and all that list. And they respond to him and they say, when did we do any of those things? Right? Uh, the Christian Christian doesn't need the credit. We don't get the credit because all glory be to God. Uh, this is his kingdom. This is his work. And we just rejoice to be part of it. Yeah, that's right. The The death and, resurre- death and resurrection language that Paul has here in this latter part of the section, I've always found very helpful to, again, understanding just what Paul means when he talks about being justified not by works of the law, but only through faith in Christ. The death and resurrection language is so black and white. You know, again, what you said about you you can't really be more dead, you're just dead. I mean, dead people don't do anything. And so if that's who I am under the works of the law, then I had no part in being made alive. It had to have come from outside me. And that's been given, again, How notice how Paul keeps it connected to Christ's work. Christ is the one, the Son of God is the one who has loved me and gave himself for me. That's where this death and resurrection has occurred. He gave it to me out of his love for me. It's all gift, and it received now through faith. Yeah, and then as we receive that through faith and we rejoice in it, Christ, he sends us in it. He always seems to do this as he teaches, right? Um, he teaches the disciples to th- what leadership looks like. It's not to do it for yourself, but Christ came not to be served, but to serve, and he calls them to do the same. Hey, yeah. He says, no greater love has one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, and he did that for us, teaches us to do the same. Um, the new commandment, which isn't really new, but uh, John, is it John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another, and at first it's just like, well, that's always been the call. But then it's that you would love one another as I have loved you. That's the new part, right? Christ has given us the the example. He's given us the gift, and now he calls us to live in the gift that he's yeah. given. Yeah. Now, our text here in Galatians 2 concludes with verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Take us into that last verse of our text. Yeah, nullify, do away with, reject. This is an argument still about how are we saved. And salvation, I think even even the Judaizer would argue that salvation is the grace of God. So Paul is not nullifying God's grace. In fact, he's quite the opposite, right? To to try to say that you can save yourself is what does away with Christ's grace. Um, To say that you can save yourself means that what Christ did has no value. If I could keep that law perfectly, why did Christ have to come? Why did he have to die? His ministry would be in vain. Mm. But it's not, because 
The Lord knew our sin. The Lord knew that we could not keep it. The Lord knew what it would take to bring us life. Yeah. And he loved us so much that he did. Yeah, yeah. This language of, of Christ having died in vain or for no purpose reminds me of the way that, that Jesus speaks in the Gospels to his disciples when he tells them about his upcoming death and resurrection. He uses the language of necessity. He says, he sometimes he'll, it'll be translated, I must do these things, or it is necessary for me to do these things. And, and I think that that language from the Lord allows Paul to say what he does here. You know, if, if I can save myself, then why was it necessary for Christ to suffer and die? Surely he could have just set the example for me without dying if I could have done it myself. But I can't do it myself. The works of the law won't save me. And so it was, in fact, necessary for Christ to die. And praise be to God that he did do what is necessary for my salvation. About a minute, minute and a half here, Pastor Andrews, for final thoughts to help us wrap up on this text. Well, again, as you mentioned before, this is a very central text to all of Scripture. The, the key question, how am I saved? Not by my works, not by my doing, but by his. Jesus Christ, by his death, has taken away all of your sins. Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, has destroyed even death for you. And it's his gift, a gift that he willingly and freely and richly gives to those who trust in him. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, brother. Christ is not a servant of sin. He is not an agent of sin. He is the one who justifies sinners. He loved us. He gave his life for us so that we would be saved, not through our works of the law. We have died to that law. We cannot keep it. Instead, we are saved through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, received in faith the promise that delivers what he has said. I am your host on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians 2, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org store.